used to have a problem with it, but um, I realized it's not helping anyone. Um, in fact, like I've recently been just putting out videos of myself rolling as well. I don't mind people watching me and figuring out what I can do um, if it means I might get a little better as well. Um, what is your opinion on um, on the, some of the BJJ fanatics, uh, some of the new stuff they've been putting out, man? Uh, I think Gary Tonin came out with a new wrestling DVD. Have you checked that out yet? I haven't. Um, I'm definitely going to. All of Gary's stuff is fantastic. And and out of all the people in the world that I've, that I've rolled with, he's probably the most fun person to roll with just with the amount of, I mean, you, you get choked, choked to death, but at the same time, like <laughs> his level of creativity and um, confidence in his defense and things like that, it leads him to, to play a really, really interesting style of jujitsu. So I'm definitely going to check that out. I think there was, um, there's another guy who trains with them. I'm going to sound like an idiot because I can't remember his name. There's another wrestler out there. Uh, I think his name's Kyle. I'm not sure. Uh, who put out a wrestling DVD. Yes. On, I think it's on I think, BJJ Fanatics as well. I yeah. Think, uh, I that, Look have that up, Jamie. Me? Have you checked that out? <laughs> I no, I haven't. I haven't been able to uh, to get in on so much of that stuff. Um, I'm really just focusing on the leg lock stuff right now. Mm -hmm. So doing that cross reference of Ryan Hall, Lachlan Giles, and uh, the second Craig Jones DVD actually has a lot of slight differences than all that stuff that I didn't realize the first time I checked it out. So I'm looking through all of that stuff. You mentioned uh, training at Daniel Hurst. You. Uh, I know that you've trained at um, at TriStar with Faraz Zahabi and the guys over there. Um, how is that, dude? I mean, that that must have been wild. <laughs> uh, let me see. It was so when I first got my black belt, I did a fight to win, and I I trained sloppily. Like I was training for a gi fight with uh, Nathan Mendelson, and uh, I, so I was being very specific. I knew Nathan Mendelson was better than me at the gi. Like he's I just got my black belt. I think he probably had 200 batches of black belt already. The guy's uh, an epic competitor, right? And so uh, I looked into like little areas that I could find, little niches that I thought that I, I might be able to beat him at if I could get him at that specific game. And uh didn't work out. I lost him. I lost him as an opponent. He got injured. And then I had two more opponents and they both backed out. And then like week of, I fought um, Matthew Todd, who's out of like Danville Jiu-Jitsu. Fantastic. And I, I took my back and... It was a good fight or whatever, but he basically dominated the fight, and uh, I lost. And I went, man, if I'm going to do this again, I have to, I have to really take my training camp seriously. And at the time, I, you know, I'm teaching six, seven hours a day, and that takes a lot out of you. And I didn't really have the infrastructure in place to be teaching and train, or to be training with the the right level of people and the amount of people I needed to be training with uh, consistently. So uh, the second time, I was like, yo, I gotta. I got to go figure out how they're doing this at the best nogi places on the planet. So I spent two weeks at TriStar and uh, that's fantastic. If anybody wants to go and do a real training camp, TriStar is amazing because they'll have two or three classes a day with really, really good people. Um, so uh, like Neil, Coach Buzzsaw, fantastic. He, he'd be doing the classes or Eamon Zahabi for us, his brother. He's or, also um, in the UFC, right? Eamon Zahabi? Yeah, Eamon's, Eamon's also in the UFC. Um, and then uh, and then Faras would be teaching, and like Mondays, George Champierre would be teaching. And you just <laughs> learn a lot of really, really good stuff. But you can stay in the dorms for like next to nothing. It was like $26 a night or something like that, which is cheaper than any hotel room. And then they have um, La Ménagère. I'm terrible at French. I think it just means the manager. But it's like a, <laughs> it's like a, a chef who is a friend of theirs who um, – who makes, he, they give you a list of like, here's our 400 ingredients of the healthiest food you've ever seen in your life. You put it together however you want and we'll make it and bring it to the gym, which FYI is 85 feet from your room. So you stay in the room, you just walk over to the gym, you have these super healthy meals, train, come back, sleep, take notes, train, come back, sleep, take notes, and you got nothing else to deal with. So I spent two weeks there. I think the whole time, the training was like $45 a week. So it was like 500 bucks or something for two weeks. So mm -hmm. that got me in shape and I got my mind in, in the, the right state to go and train over at, uh, at, uh, at Danaher's. And so that was kind of a split, split second decision. It was like at the end of the trip, it was like, you know what? I'm right here. So Amazing. I went down to New York and uh, my buddy AO said that I could stay at his place cause he was out of town. So I got to 
got to train at Danaher's twice a day. And then at night I would go to Marcelo's and, um, you can imagine you learn quite a bit when like, like my morning situationals, uh, was like, all right, drill with Jake Shields for an hour and then we'll do, uh, four situational rounds. And like my first situation is Jake Shields. My second is Gary Tona and my third is Gordon Ryan. And my fourth is like, um, like doesn't matter like lots of good people right so i got real sharp with my stuff um then i i came back and i had my fight to win it was perfect I had like four days until fight to win when i got back i'm like perfect i go in and fight and i i fought a real tough guy from northern california manny hocha um and i made it through the fight and I, honestly the only way only reason i did is because of all that training because he came after my legs right off the bat. And I had no idea that he was going to do that. I was like, <laughs> leg lock this guy. And then he just dropped in a butterfly guard. I'm like, oh, man. But uh, after training with those guys so much, it, it became like second nature. So I was never really yeah. too scared of the leg locks that I got stuck in. I, but I would not have had that composure had I not done that training. So, um, yeah, training with, those, with that group of people um, on a consistent basis – the fact that everybody takes it very seriously, but they're having a good time. Um, the technical yeah. instruction. The professional. It's game changing. It's game changing for sure. Yeah. Um, just, you mentioned Jake Shields. Uh, he's back in the Bay Area now, right? Uh, hard to say. I think he moved back here. And then, and then the last time I talked to him, he was, he, he travels a bit. Travels a bit. I think he was in Hawaii and some other places and stuff. <laughs> Um, what about you, man? Uh, once this lockdown opens, do you have any seminar seminars planned? Actually, um, I have no seminars planned right now because oh, who knows when the lockdown is going to end and when it's going to make sense for people. Mm -hmm. um, but right before the lockdown, I was talking with Ryan Hall, and he was he was super into the idea. Uh, after his fight, he was supposed to be fighting Ricardo Lamas in April, and then uh, after that, we were gonna we we're gonna look into having a, a seminar with him. Uh, co-sponsored by leg locker so hopefully we'll we'll make that happen that would be a huge a huge thing because you know drilling off the dvd you don't have him standing there saying yeah you miss you misinterpreted that you're stupid so yeah hopefully we can get that happening and he can come by and tell me how stupid Speak, speaking story. speaking of hector dude that guy is doing some incredible shit dude. um he's really stepping his game up um i mean uh, he he killed it with that Craig Jones world tour, and I don't know what he has planned next. But if it's Ryan Hall, that's huge. Yeah, um, I think the thing that he's working on right now during the quarantine that I keep seeing of is is uh, Isaac Mitchell, the the purple belt that I was talking about. Um, the one dollar seminars. One one dollar seminar. I think that's just like one dollar, and then everybody can join in on it or something. Which I seriously encourage everyone to do because um, that guy is like Craig Jones's main training partner, and uh, He's on the come up. He's a very, very technical and, and very good competitor. So I would say definitely check that out if you guys could get the chance. Hey, did you check out uh, Craig Jones versus Vinny Magalesh? I did. Did you see that finish? I'm trying not to think about it. Uh, thoughts on, on, on <laughs> that. Um, obviously, Vinny Magalesh is fucking ridiculously flexible, but apparently he injured his shin. Um, yeah, so thoughts on the finish and why he didn't get a clean break um those, that's my main question mike on the knee why he didn't get a clean i don't honestly i don't know enough about it to 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 tell you i don't know the extent of vinny's injuries or anything like that um you know you know when you watch the lockland dvd his his student that he demonstrates on mm -hmm. the flexible uh, kid yeah is it kai kaya 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 yeah kaya you see how flexible his knee turns around and stuff. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm imagining that Vinny might have that going for him. Like he might. Mike, just have did you see where his toes were, bro? No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that that might also be a part of how, like, maybe that's why leg locks don't work, so to speak. But um, hell, man, Vinny's just tough as nails, dude. He just did. It looked like he just did not care. And there you go. Like I've seen actually. I've seen some videos online um, of, was it Josh LaDuke, um, where he, he cut people in outside heel hooks and then, like, their shin snapped. Yeah. And I'm like, I've never done that. But then again, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but that's still an outside heel hook. And I, I, I see myself not tapping to that. But an inside heel hook is fucking vicious, man. 
Um, yeah. Especially right. when you have a six foot three fucking Australian. You know, you know what I'll, I'll say? What was really cool about getting to roll with Craig is um, I roll with a lot of really, really good people. In the, but there's something about the way that Craig rolls that, um, you know how on the DVDs he talks about like baiting the person so that they come into a left-sided half guard or a left-sided mm-hmm. reverse Delahiva because most people aren't that good at defending or at, uh, at passing through their left side like that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, sure, I was, I was sweating and tired like, like I was an alcoholic or something. Just, but <laughs> I could not get that guy on his right hip. Like he just, he's, he's extraordinarily good at putting you in that one little area where it's just like, man, you really cannot put that guy on his right hip when you're, when you're trying to pass. He's, he's very good at doing that. So um, again, that's, all, that's a lot of people. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. That's again, shades of Marcelo Garcia. He would only talk about working one side and uh, moving the opponent down one side. Again, that's big part of strategy, which I think a lot of people do avoid in today's day and age when going into competition, especially with yeah, the drilling uh, and preparation. It's interesting. My, my first judo coach made us uh, learn everything on the left side. Like everybody's is naturally right-handed. 99% of people are, but he'd say do everything on the left side. And it's kind of a thing in judo. It's well known that in judo, like the, a lot of the best players are, are left-handed or at least play left-handed because it, it is something that's hard to find opponents who are good at playing on their left side. Like it's really hard to, to find people who are actually good at that. So um like training with a southpaw in boxing or something like that, where you're like, oh, you have to find a good southpaw first, right? Really? So, I mean, southpaws, I think, are a little bit more common. No, as in, I, I would have never known that uh, judo, um, I mean, that I've never thought of that, dude. That's pretty smart, uh, working your left side only. Yeah. Um, early in wrestling, it's right side only, right? What's up? Uh, most wrestling coaches will make you shoot off your right, correct? I couldn't tell you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask somebody. No, from, ask. From, from my experience and um, the wrestling classes that I have attended at Unity, at Marcelo's, um, they always make you shoot off your right. Even, even some of the MMA fighters that I have um, come across or watched um, in their younger years, they'd all shoot off the right leg. And that's interesting that you say that about judo. Uh, yeah, uh, for me personally, like, uh, I've, I've heard the logic on both sides. I know Marcelo's argument was kind of like, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a good pitcher in baseball, they don't tell you learn to throw with both arms. Mm-hmm. They tell you, like, get that right arm real good or get that left arm real good. So um, there is something to be said for uh, specializing in a certain area. You know what I mean? What are your um, thoughts about training your athletes, uh, both sides or one side? Um. It, it kind of depends. It, it, I don't have like a rule of thumb on it. Um, I try to, I try to teach them what works best for them for the start, for the starting point. Like I, I try to individualize that stuff, basic drilling. Like you're going to learn Toriando passing. Yeah. You're going to do both sides. Right. Okay. Um, split squat passing a little bit more intricate where you're stepped in already and everything like that. I want you to master one side generally, like in whatever side you're more comfortable with which almost always is with your right foot in front and you're doing that. Um, Mainly because I personally think that when I pass on the left side, if I'm bad at it, like if it's a pass I'm not so accustomed to, but I know full well because I've mastered it on the other side, I can pretty much teach myself that pass from the other side. I know what the cues are. I see a little bit more drilling. So if you can master it on one side, then you can kind of translate it to the other side as well. Um, But it kind of, it kind of breaks down to like what your goals are with rolling. You know, when it comes to competing, you have, you go with your A game like hundred percent of the time. Um, but when it comes to, you know, 99.9% of your rolling in jujitsu is if you do your whole lifetime is not going to be super competitive rolling. It's going to be like, Hey, I'm rolling with this guy and that guy. Yeah. Learn how to pass on the left side too. And play with that a little bit, you know? Um, just getting into that a little bit. Um, I have a question which is going a little off topic. Um, your schedule, what is your schedule like when you guys are not on lockdown, man? Um, what's your day look like? I get up at 5.30, 5.15, 5.30. Mm-hmm. And uh, I drive, I have to drive early because the traffic is so bad out of Pacifica where I live to get into San Francisco that I have to leave before the traffic starts. So 
basically I, I get to Health Gracie, San Francisco around six o'clock, six fifteen, and I, I sit there and I study and drink coffee in my car, maybe take a nap. And then uh, I teach the 7 a.m. competition class. And afterwards, usually I have a private lesson or two, come back, um, eat, do whatever work I have to do for the business. And then I have kids classes starting at uh, 5 o'clock. And I teach kids till 7 o'clock and then adults till 9 o'clock, 9.30. So that's just like an average every day. I work pretty much from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. And uh, what's your relationship with Hal's like, man? Uh, I'm, and I know you told me that, I mean, you got your black belt from Hal's, but um, majority of your training was under Kurt Ocean, if I'm, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, I've had, a, I've had a real interesting run of it. Uh, initially, I started with judo. And then when I moved into jujitsu, I trained mm-hmm. with uh, Jake Shields and Gilbert Melendez back in like 2006 for about six months. Got broke my ribs at a tournament and uh, came back to just judo for a little bit. And then after that, I went to 10th Planet San Francisco with uh, Denny Prokopos for a couple of years. And then I was kind of self-training for a little bit. Uh, probably that. not the right way to do it, but I was just being studying that. DVDs and teaching at a, at a school in Park Merced, CDBJJ. It's my first school. And, um, after that I moved over to health Gracie, San Francisco and like, yeah, 90, 90% of the training was with, uh, with Kurt Oziander or some of his, uh, assistant instructors like, uh, Teddy Vita, mm-hmm. um, or Papa Frankie Nunez. So I learned from all those guys for years and years and years. Uh, there was the split between Kurt and Half, and then now Half has been there around there a lot more. Um, so I mean, most of my training, honestly, is has been just with the benefit of having a lot of good people to train with. So I'd say probably 70% of my game coming up was like Ryan Hall DVDs mm-hmm. and uh, being able to work that on incredibly tough people over at Health Gracie San Francisco, you know, your Luke Stewart's and those kind of people where you're like, okay, if it works on them, which yeah. it didn't most of the time, uh, <laughs> it'll work on, it'll work on, uh, on some other people. So my relationship with health now is it's great, man. Um, he's doing a really good job. He's really, uh, doubled down. He's been through all of his own personal problems and stuff. And, and, uh, he's really doubled down on, on, on the Academy in San Francisco and, and running things. So, uh, it's been really cool to have him around. And, uh, the school is completely different. Um, in a good way. I love it. I love it. It's the school used to be real clicky. It used to have a lot of like this group and that group and that group and this group and we don't hang out with them or we criticize them and that stuff has been gone for the most part like um almost everybody cross trains you know we have Helen Gracie teaching Teddy Vita teaching uh Tay and uh, Gianni Cravello yeah yeah good god those guys Tay is a fucking monster dude I've been following him on Instagram and he comes up with new content every day which is with which I am writing down and I am going back to drill too. Um, but just, um, your, your lower belt levels, what was that like training with training under half Gracie or Kurt and how hard was training for you, uh, getting to your black belt? <laughs> um, I don't know if we're legally allowed to talk about it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> let's see, let's see this. Um, what was your hardest, uh, period in that journey? Let's start with something period. simple. It was probably purple belt. Purple belt was probably the absolute hardest because it, there was this competitive atmosphere there where people were really trying to fucking kill each other during rolls. And uh, <laughs> plus I was younger too. You know, when you're 24, 20, 23, 24, 25, it's like, you just go at it. So I was training uh, twice a day, bare minimum, and then teaching at night. And it was like, you get up, you do an hour of drilling, drill and kill. And then you do six, six minute rounds where people are just murdering each other. Come back do it again and then teach at night. And, um, those were intense, man. I, I think the hardest times with Kurt weren't, uh, weren't in the sparring training, even though those were hard as well. The hardest times were like, I remember Sean Roberts and I were getting ready for a tournament and, uh, Sean was doing conditioning with Kurt. And I said, all right, let's, I'll, I'll do, I'll go do conditioning. I want to get in shape too. Kurt knows about conditioning and kinesiology to a degree, but he wasn't trying to do that. He was trying to make you just like, there's no way you're ever going to quit in a match because this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your fucking life. So the training was like, okay, take um, a 25 pound dumbbell in each arm and just carry it above your head. You're just going to run in a circle for 35 minutes. 
What? It's like, and I'll give you a break. <laughs> You're just going like, what are you talking about? He goes, all right, it's break time. 10 Turkish get-ups on each side. And you're like, okay. You just, what? He just kept pushing you. And it was like an hour, hour and a half. I swear to God, it was the most miserable, miserable time. <laughs> I'm not doing it justice. I don't even remember. I think I, like, a, like a kid who, who was traumatized, I'm like. <laughs> you blocked out some of that shit? Yeah. That, what Kurt taught me the most, um, I learned a ton of my basics from Kurt, but what I learned the most from Kurt was, um, mental toughness it was just you were never gonna quit if that guy was on the side of the mat yelling you better not fucking quit you fucker and like <laughs> you would hear that in the back and you're just like ah, I gotta go so like um, Kurt definitely one of the things he taught me was to believe in myself like um, I had a good good day at the I think it was 2013 jiu-jitsu world expo or whatever um, the flying arm locked the guy for the first time I had a great day and then uh, that night he was a little bit inebriated. We were at a, we were at a hotel bar <laughs> and uh, he looked at me and he, and what he told me was like, he, he told me that if I believed in myself that I could compete with the best people in the world, Nogi, like that was just his, he just said it to me. Like he just came and was like, but you don't fucking believe in yourself enough. You need to believe in yourself. And I was like, shit, like, you can think that in your head, but until you have somebody who you respect, like really tell that to you and say like, hey, I don't know why you're fucking around, but you need to believe in yourself. Like mm -hmm. you can do this. And I went, okay, I slept on it. And we had the second day of the tournament, the next day, the Nogi portion. And uh, it was like the first match I beat one of the art of jujitsu, one of the Mendez brothers, purple belts. Um, and then uh, my second match, I fought that I fought this kid who's, he's fantastic. He was a, he was a world champion from uh, team Lloyd Irving's. And the first day, I had lost to him in a gi on, uh, on points. And uh, it, it was just – it was one of those frustrating matches where you're just like, God damn it, I just lost on points to this guy. And he's, he was a bit smaller than me too. Um, we fought in the Open the next day. And uh, I swear, man, I was just um, – I was super excited. I was super amped. I was getting ready. And um, I guess I have to – I guess I have to explain the nickname he gave me because this is what he, what he said. Is if, if you can't tell by the – by my nose, <laughs> my nose does this little like half pipe, like ski ramp, who from Whoville thing. And uh, while Kurt was drunk the night before, he looked over at me and he, and he goes, wait, I know what the fuck you are. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you're the fucking Lorax. And I go, Lorax? He goes, your fucking nose, you're the fucking Lorax. And I'm like thinking in my head, the Lorax is like a round chubby thing with a big round nose. I'm going, you mean the who from Whoville? And he goes, no, the fucking Lorax. And I'm like, alrighty then. Fuck it, right? So, so I'm like, I get some of the Lorax. I, don't, I didn't know it was a nickname that was going to stick. And then the next day I go out there to, uh, to compete. And right as I'm stepping on the mat, I'm doing my like Eminem like... You only get one shot thing. And then uh, from the stands, I look up. And Kirk goes, hey! And I'm like, and I, he's like right next to like Gui Mendez and like all these like famous jiu-jitsu people. And they're all like cheering for the other guy and stuff. He looks at me, he goes, fuck him up, Lorax! <laughs> I'm like, I just went. Yeah, let's go do this. I had one of those confident combinations that I was used to, which was like, just jump for a guillotine. And then the second they start posturing out, you jump in and you pull guard. But uh, it turned out to be like a four second match. Cause I just, I just believed in myself so much in that moment. I jumped up for the guillotine. He postured out to fight my hands and I jumped in for a, to pull guard. But when I pulled him down, it was like a pendulum sweep. He posted on the floor and I threw him into a fly, into an arm lock. So it was basically like a four second flying arm lock. And I was like, <laughs> Oh shit. Like everyone was silent for a second and then they all freaked out and I was like, okay, cool. So he was right. Like, so those are like the moments that I remember the most from, from Kurt was, uh, he's just, he's such a genuinely good human being. Um, everyone's got their issues and stuff, but man, he, Kurt is just, he, he really does help you. He sees the good in you and he, he's not afraid to, uh, to promote it and to tell you about it. Right. Um, Half, my experience was very different. Uh, he wasn't around as much when I was coming up. I would see him once a week, maybe twice a week. Sometimes he would come in for the competition class, which 
man, that class back in the day was, it was murderer's row. It was probably 27 different black belts from different places uh, coming in for, for that training just Tuesday and Thursday morning. And it would, it would be insane. It'd be like Antonio Braganetto and Jake Shields uh, watching them go at it when you're like a blue belt, purple belt, and you're just going, okay. Shit just like don't this, right? <laughs> then um, I remember one, one particular time was uh, I was rolling with Adam Dunkel, who's a really good black belt out here. And I think he had just, he had won pans at purple belt the year before and he was a brown belt at the time. And I just got my purple belt and how, so I did like a two hour practice with Kurt. Right. And it was one of them heat wave days that we never get in San Francisco. So it was super hot. I'd probably lost like seven or eight pounds of body weight already. Just sweating. I was like dead laying on the floor going, Oh, I'm done. <laughs> and then Half walks in. He goes, Hey, motherfucker, come here. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. He goes, get over here. Close guard. Right. So, he has me put closed guard on, Don, on, on Adam, right? And uh, he just says, go. And I'm like, okay. So I guess we're still sparring. So I'm like, all right, fuck it. I'll do this. I got to do this for health. Long story short, an hour and a half later, after Adam had passed <laughs> my guard um, probably 77 times, something like that, right? In between. So every time he passed my guard, Half would hit me with a – one of those, uh, those sticks that they use in Taekwondo, like the, the Boken swords, <laughs> the bamboo swords. He would just keep hitting me with it until I was back in closed guard. He goes, get back in guard, motherfucker. I'm like, okay, cool. So I got back there. And then we'd fight again, and I'd do my best to beat this guy, but he was just better than me. He was just better than me. So yeah. over and over. So like an hour and a half later, we stopped. I've got bruises up and down my body for like the next week. But that kind of stuff, as barbaric as it sounds, first off, those, those swords don't hurt that much. It's just like, psychologically, you're going, fuck, he's hitting me. Okay, shit. But um, there's a certain kind of mental training. Like, I don't, I don't hit my students and stuff like that. I, I make it voluntary. I'll make it like, you know, if you, if you want hard training, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you through hard training, and I'm going to ask you. But I'm going to make you do that. I don't, I don't hit them with swords and stuff like that. But, um, Thank you for justifying, Mike. Uh, thank you, Mike. Oh, man, thank I, you. Needed, I needed it. You're giving us some ideas, man. We didn't ask, Mike. We didn't. This quarantine gets over. Ashton is going to be walking around with a fucking a pipe <laughs> or uh, uh, like one of those wooden swords just cracking on the head with a kendo stick. Ashton, that'll be perfect. We'll have a rubber You'll break your neck with it. That's chain, bro. Uh, so, Mike, would you fight? Okay. Gun point at your head. Uh, actually, no, you take the bullet. Mike Tyson or Half Crazy, who would you fight? If I what? If you had to fight one of these two people, who would you fight? Mike Tyson or Half Crazy? Uh, Mike Tyson. <laughs> That's saying something, I think. Mike Tyson, so here's my logic. Mike Tyson, that shit would be over quick. <laughs> <laughs> he hit me once, I would drift off into another dimension, and I'd wake <laughs> up with like a shattered skull, or I wouldn't wake up at all, right? Half he keep me awake and <laughs> make me suffer. I think that's <laughs> oh, man. The, the, the big difference. <laughs> okay, good answer, good answer. Uh, I think I'd do the same, man. Anything else you got on, on, on your mind, Moet? Moet? I, I, I have a question. Mike, Mike, when did you start teaching uh, at Half Graces? At uh, what age? Last week. Oh. Jeez. Um, I mean, one of, one of the annoying things about me for years to a lot of people who are my training partners was like, I guess the biggest criticism was that I was teaching too much and not training enough, maybe. Um, like, he should just be drilling, stop teaching. So I probably started teaching when I was a blue belt, honestly. But um, I think uh, it was, I started the, the Nogi program there like two years ago. And before that, I was running the Saturday classes for like a year, year and a half, something like that. Um, so I don't know, a few years, three or four years now. No, just um, going off of what you were saying earlier, um, for guys to get better, um, I think like when they have to teach and they have to really research the material and prepare for class and, and know what they're talking about, like that makes a big difference as opposed to uh, 
showing up just sitting there and hoping that the information being provided is enough you know so if if the guys are teaching themselves i feel like they get more of an impetus to get better at what they're trying to do is that a question okay yeah <laughs> so like at what, no, no, at what sure. level do you do you let guys teach because um you know like at our now a lot of guys have started taking classes uh outside of ashwin and uh, jahangir as well so just wanted to know about your thoughts i mean in jaipur we've got a guy who's barely trained a year and a half and he takes a lot of the classes man yeah um well let me let me put it this way uh, historically i started teaching when i was a sort of self promoted blue belt like i i started teaching it was a weird story but like i i didn't get my blue belt um at all i just started competing at blue belt after a few years because i i switched schools and stuff and i had already competed at at a blue belt tournament and then i by the time i got my purple belt i already won like 24 25 tournaments at at blue belt right but um i was teaching and uh, nobody questioned my rank but it was like some people have a natural ability to teach um so my students did well in tournaments and things like that even with reputable instructors like my students would beat there sometimes um honestly i would say teaching helped me tremendously that being said i had a talent for it right from the beginning um the first time i did a a teaching seminar i did it with a a super i think it was like a ninth degree almost a 10th degree black belt now one of the one of the super higher up dudes hayward nishioka who's a judo guy and we did a teaching seminar and when i taught there um i'd never done it before and everybody was like yo you should teach like so i had that going for me that i already i was good at explaining information i had the personality for it and that sort of thing um then uh then i started teaching like classes at city college and some other stuff um so for me i think it's a good idea for people to teach but as far as like who i will allow to teach at my gym um i know this that like there's a balance that you have to hold which is that you have to give people the opportunity to 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 fail at teaching because they have to have those bad days they have to bomb so to speak right um but you just give them like a, like you're a comedian you give them like an open an open mic spot you know what i mean it's like hey you want to come in on saturdays at open mat what i want you to do is i want you to take these two techniques give them something off a of dana her dvd or something and they're like i want you to take these two techniques and i want you to take those two guys over there and i want you to teach this to them as best as you possibly can then at the end of it i come over and i go all right well show me what you learned and i watch him how he how they teach and then i'll i'll help him out with it and show them hey there's little things about teaching that people never explain to people little tiny th- like the fact that there's basically three main styles of learning it's like audible visual visual and kinesthetic and you have to figure out what your audience is a lot of people like my problem is i'm a very verbal teacher um so if i didn't learn how to also give good visual demonstrations and also shut up sometimes and have them just go drill a little bit of it that's basically how i do it now um but you have to learn the that structure of teaching there's a whole other art that's not just do you know jiu jitsu techniques it's like do you know what a class is supposed to be like most people think that like i hate it when i go to a class and it's very serious and everyone's bored and it's like this overly stand in line do this cuz that's not why people are there like they learn way better if you come in and you're like hey man how's it going and you shake everyone's hand and you say hey hey what's up to everybody you ask everyone how everyone's doing i think a good class should be like uh a fun social event like almost like a party where everyone gets together and they're having fun but they're working hard and they're learning a ton um so like an adjustment that i've made for myself is uh i experimented over the years and because i'm so heavy with the intellectual verbal stuff where i want to talk about physics principles and i want to talk about weird abstract analogies and things um i break it down into smaller units so we chunk information um so i might teach one series that's really long that if i showed the whole series nobody would get it but i break it down into like seven parts over the night you drill for like 5 minutes we come back and then i re-explain what i just explained and then i add one little tiny piece and then we go back and we drill that for a few minutes and i basically just walk around the perimeter of the mat until so i can see everybody so i can kind of get a, a an understanding of 
uh, who's understanding what and how quickly we can move on. And when I feel like a good enough portion of the people have mastered it to move on, um, I'll add another little tiny piece. And once I've added that piece, you know, I, I switch partners up. I'll say like, this guy knows, I know he knows the next two steps. So I partner him with the guy who sucks. <laughs> I mean, so you learn different arts to teaching over time. And the only way to do that is really like I was talking about, not that I'm an expert, but like comedy, you got to bomb an open mic. You got to do a million open mics. You can't just jump in and start doing specials. Right. So when it comes to teaching, you, you just got to put in your reps and your numbers. It's mm -hmm. as much of a skill as an arm lock or uh, competing. They're all separate skills. I feel you, you, should, uh, you do this though. Uh, you look at teaching ex exclusive of BJJ. Like you look at it, uh, you look to just study how to teach um, different age groups. And, you know, I, I know you have a kids class also. Um, um, how do you prepare for, how do you prepare for that? Because um, I struggled with that initially when we started a kids program at the academy. Um, transitioning from the kids class immediately to the adults. Um, because teaching kids is a, is a whole other ballgame and it can eat you up if you don't prepare for that. Oh, yeah. Um, first thing you have to understand, the first thing I would study if you want to teach kids is uh, Piaget, Jean Piaget, the uh, stages of um, development in kids. So if you study child development at all, you start to realize that like certain things don't even click, like executive function doesn't even click until they're a much older age. So when you're sitting there saying like, I told you to get on the line and I told you to do it like this, they literally understand you as much as your puppy does. Yeah. Like you're just going, huh? So, so basically with the younger age kids, you take a completely behavioralist approach. You can teach them some small intellectual stuff by reiterating it a lot, but ultimately it's uh, stimulus and response. It's reward and punishment. And the way that you reward kids is attention. And the way that you punish them is lack of attention. So the big mistake that I see people make uh, with kids is that they take them and they teach them like, Hey, if you don't do this, you're going to get punished like that. And the kid doesn't quite understand that. So like kids will take this as the best example. If you take a baby, a baby knows nothing. It's just literally what's the difference between me and everything outside of me. Like the baby doesn't know anything. It doesn't have any concepts in its head. Right. Mm -hmm. When it's that age, it's helpless. It can't eat by itself. It can't protect itself. It can't keep itself warm. It can't do anything. Right. So for all intents and purposes, you are God to your baby. You feed it, you keep it safe, you give it water, you do everything, right? So at a certain age, they start developing to the point where maybe they eat by themselves. And they become power drunk because every time that they throw their food on the floor, mom gets mad or dad gets mad and starts yelling at them like, hey, 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 no, we put our food on the plate like that. Yeah. But all the baby knows is I just made the gods do stuff. Like I'm in control of the gods right now. Yeah. So they get drunk off that power and then they start just looking for attention in any way that they can possibly get it. Now, the first time that your kid eats a meal without spilling any food, you're like, yay. The next Tuesday, you don't care. So, so the baby's like, wow, oh, why would I do good stuff when I could just do that? And I'll yeah. always get attention for it. Right. So, you take that into, a, into account. I used to, when I first started teaching kids, have this, and then I had some crazy kids. Not, a, not at the gym that I'm at now, my original <laughs> gym. I had a couple of students there. That it was, Thank you for clarifying. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, you have no, you have no, uh, what you, call it? you have no student base, so you just, you take whoever. You can't really have standards, like if a kid legitimately pr should probably be in therapy, not at your gym. <laughs> um, you just take that kid anyways, right? So I had a couple kids that were, like they needed a lot, they needed professional help. And I, I had to dealt with them and I was frustrated back and forth trying to figure out how to discipline and how to make this happen and that happen. And it's like the problem with kids is you can tell them that's it, do 50 push-ups, And they just look at you like this and then they slowly hump the ground and pretend they're doing push-ups and laugh when you get frustrated. Who does that actually? He <laughs> <laughs> goes, are these the kind of push-ups you want me to do? Like, yeah, sweet. So eventually I read this book called uh, Who's Raising Whom? Right. And it's basically just about a behavioralist approach to raising kids. And the idea is like you want to extinguish bad behavior, not reward it. Because the kid doesn't care if the, if 
they prefer positive attention, but they'll just take attention. So I got a kid in class who won't stop poking someone or punching someone or doing something like this. I used to be like, Hey, I told you, blah, blah, blah. I don't do that anymore. That's an emotional reaction. I look at them like I'm the Borg from Star Trek. Like I just go, Nope, corner now. And then they sit in the corner and I tell them if I come back here in 30 seconds, and you're still sitting here with your hands on your hips silently and you haven't touched anything, you can just jump right back in, no big deal, it's all good. And then the kid usually, probably 60, 70% of the time will do it. And the other 40% of the time they will, uh, they'll mess up and I'll just come back over and I'll go, hey, I was gonna let you in, but you're not sitting, so sit and then I'll let you back into class and it's all good and we can play some games, yeah? So it's all positive. There's no negative thing there. I'm not like, hey, you hit that kid. I'm like, nah. Hey, you're a kid. You do stupid stuff sometimes. I don't care about that stuff. I only care when you do good stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's one approach that I have to take that's different with the kids. The other thing is, is getting them a bit exhausted at the beginning of class is always a good idea. <laughs> making, them, making them do a lot of floor drills and running around and that sort of thing. But developmental age-appropriate class is the important part. If you have four to six-year-olds, class should be 99% games and learning how to sit still. Right. Rewarding them for sitting still. Rewarding the parents, I guess. Was that? It helps the parents as well. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Another kid, thing. Another, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the parents uh, will often come up to me and say, "You're amazing. I don't know how you can do that with forty kids at one time. You get them all to stand still." And I'm like, "I only have to do this for an hour." <laughs> not with. I can have infinite patience for an hour. And I get paid for it. Kid for, if I have to be there for 24 hours, I imagine things would be a little bit more hairy. Another thing, another question I had for you, man. Uh, uh, in recent times, uh, we've, we've struggled at the academy to have women coming in. Or if they do come in, we've struggled with them staying in. Um, aside from making it like a... Is a, a homely, welcoming place. What What are your tips on that, man? How do you retain women at the academy, and um, how do you get people to actually come and train? Hmm. Well, I wish I could say I was an expert on that. Um, no, just just things you picked up along the way, and things that have worked, and things that haven't worked. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I mean, I tried everything from like having a ladies' discount to having this and that. Honestly. I don't really promote any kind of like special outreach type thing. The real thing that you need is ultimately just a small group of ladies. Because mm-hmm. for the longest time, I had basically just Ari was the only girl at the gym for like three years, probably two years at least. And uh, there were a couple other girls who would come in sometimes, but because of the location of my gym, it wasn't right in the middle of everything. So you, you have to basically like build a community inside the gym. Um, we had a few girls come from another school recently and it now it's like every class there's like four or five girls so now when a girl comes in the front door she doesn't see just a room full of dudes yeah she sees a bunch of girls so I think that's one of the main things is it, it kind of snowballs like you have to you have to find a few girls get them to commit and after that you'll see a large uptick in the amount of women who actually stay because for me it's not the amount of girls who uh, try it out there's probably been a hundred girls who tried it out over the last like five, six years, but the ones who stayed come kind of when they feel that, that community, that connection, right? Ari felt that connection with everybody, with, with the guys and everything. But um, I think that uh, it can be challenging to be the only girl in a gym. Like it can be very, very challenging for that. So um, I don't know. I think, uh, I think you, you, first off, nip any bullshit, that your students are doing any way that they're behaving any like, like I'm not on some like crazy, everyone's got to be a, a neo-feminist type thing when they're at the gym. But for sure, but for sure, like if some, if some guy comes to me in my gym and he's like, Hey man, uh, I'm not, I'm not being open about it, but uh, pff, dude, that girl's fucking hot. Like if somebody acts like that at my gym, I look at him and I go, that's cool, dude. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, obviously dude, you got to nip that shit. I don't want to hear about it because yeah. you're talking about it with me. You're definitely talking about it with him and him and him. And even if you guys don't ever, don't ever screw up once and you never say it in front of any of the girls, they're still going to get the vibe that you're doing it. Like 
dating in the gym, that kind of thing. That's one of the things that, that people, people get obsessed about. And I'm like, I feel like the rule for dating in the gym should be literally like the opposite of how it generally works in public, which is that like women should have to be the pursuers hundred percent of the time. <laughs> yeah. Like if you're a dude in the gym, you should just like positive attitude. Be nice. I don't care if she's super attractive and you have a huge crush on her. Just be cool because that's not why she's here. This isn't a social, you're not going to the club on Friday night. You know, it's not, <laughs> you're not trying to do that. So we um, shouldn't uh, cross over into the academy, correct? Yeah. Um, I mean, that being said, I know people who, who have great marriages where they met their spouse in the academy. Yeah. So I don't think that it's wrong to date people from the academy, but I think that you should take into account the fact that um, I, I have a, a rule here that I almost put up on the board, which is the workplace rule, which is like, if you work with somebody and you think you might actually want a real relationship with them and they seem like they want it, like you have a real good chemistry, that's something I think you can probably pursue. But like, Hey, we're just going to have hookup culture in the gym. I'm like, anybody who's engaged in hookup culture, how many of those people are still good friends? Exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's not happening. And like, if you had to hang out with every person that you met on Tinder, <laughs> like they, yeah. they were showing up at your gym yeah. every day, you'd be like, this is awkward and weird. Like people need to take that into account. Um, and it's a, it's a real rough thing to, to mitigate uh, with students. With instructors, I think the rule is basically just fucking don't. Just don't. Especially if it's your gym and you're running stuff. Especially if you're going to like give somebody preferential treatment and that kind of thing. It's like a relationship, yes. But if you're just trying to hook up with all your students. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, look, I'm not judging you. But I'm also like, it's probably not going to work out well. There's going to be a lot of drama going on. When you're the last three girls you were hooking up with are also, <laughs> are also in class with the girl you're trying to have a relationship with now, like this is gonna be, this is gonna be, it's gonna be weird. <laughs> oh, <laughs> both laughing like, oh, both of our girlfriends we met in jujitsu. <laughs> I mean, mine I did, but more that or more no, no, oh, music music festival. So he met he met his wife at yoga wife, class yeah. before she quit doing yoga. Yeah, basically. I, I so the story is uh, we were at this music festival. Uh, Utkarsh and I were there, and uh, she was teaching uh, a yoga class at ten in the morning. So we stayed up partying all night, and her class was for an hour from ten to eleven. At ten forty-five, we show up where the class is happening inside a palace, and we knock. Because we see a bunch of people just like stretching, relaxing, doing the, we're like, yo, can we get into this right now? Because we are pretty strung out from a night of uh, going nuts. She's like, get the fuck out of here. What's wrong with you? Like, we came basically 45 minutes late for a one-hour class. Um, <laughs> and that's, that, that was the second time I met her. I met her uh, the night before that because... Just for a moment, she told me, we, we, I've got this yoga class. I was like, yo, I'm definitely going to go to that yoga class. I remember this. Um, guess I'm married to her now. So that oh, so I guess she did that to you, kind of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Reverse card, Moet. The long card. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. I'm in. <laughs> Your wife took advantage of you as a powerful <laughs> yoga instructor. Yeah, so she she played tricks. Tricks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, like I said, I'm not I'm not entirely against it. People are if people can be like rational adult human beings. Unfortunately, that that makes up like two percent of anybody. Mm -hmm. So the rule for my gym is like, yeah, dude. The second somebody somebody has to come to me and say, look, this guy's being creepy, I'm gonna have a like I don't do the I'm not gonna pick a side thing. I just come up to him like, look, I don't know if you are being creepy. If I haven't seen it, I'll just say, I don't know if you are being creepy. Look at me. Somebody is already saying that you're being creepy. I would stay the hell away from that person and make sure they have no excuse to ever call you creepy at all. Because then if you are being creepy, you stop being creepy. And if you aren't, I'm hanging out with somebody who's just up about you. So like, <laughs> I don't know. That's an interesting approach, man. 
it's like when you're when you're telling this guy this, uh, the guy who's being uh, not so you know amicable. Radiohead is playing in the back. <laughs> you know, man, it's not even just. <laughs> it's not even about that, which I probably might actually put that on the radio while I go talk to the person. But, um, <laughs> he gets the hint. He's like, yo, yeah. buddy. Hey, you hear this song? I'm playing this for you right now, buddy. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no, that's for anything, dude. If somebody smells like ass, like you need to shower before you come to jujitsu, I go, I bring him to the side and I go, hey, let me talk to you for a second. Yeah, how, yeah. how, do, you, how do you get through that conversation, Bro. man? Yeah, it's easy. Uh, it's easy because I care more about my gym than I care about them. So I look at them and I just bring them to the side and I'm very direct. I don't like hint at shit. I just come, hey, dude, I don't do it in front of people so it's not embarrassing. I just go in the back and go, hey, man, I want to bring this up in, any, in front of anybody, but you smell horrible. <laughs> There's a shower right there. I got some clean clothes that you can put on afterwards, but do not come to my class smelling like that again. You understand? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, And they always apologize. I was like, oh, my God. No one ever goes... No, I don't. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> so, I that, may have called some people out directly in front of other people. Um, I know. <laughs> the anti-bullying campaign over at your gym, I heard from people. It's happened. I'm not gonna lie. But we have some smelly fuckers. It's way harder here than it is in San Francisco, man. It's, it's very obvious when... I mean, I can't say much from the experience. Everybody that everybody that I rolled with over at your place smelled fine, but like out here, it's very <laughs> obvious because people take hygiene. The a difference between India and and San Francisco is the level of like care and concern about general hygiene is just way higher. Just people, there's always five or six people in the gym that if you walk in and your foot looks slightly dirty or something, everyone will just go, "What the fuck is wrong with that?" Like they will talk about it. It is just. Very, very, very present. People are very, like, hypochondriacs about about hygiene out here. So, I mean, I think this is the first time in a generation people are, have like been told wash your hands, like yeah, because of this coronavirus thing. Uh, it's literally a massive paradigm shift here. Where hey, wash your hands, sanitize your hands, don't fucking touch your face if your hands are dirty. <laughs> Bro, that's what's so ridiculous about it is like. The fact that people have to be taught how to wash their hands, because they do. Because if you, if you, next time you're in a restroom and like you go to wash your hands and there's someone next to you, just watch how they wash their hands. It's like, it's pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's 0.4 seconds and they're out. What was that? It's not even a rinse. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, uh, we probably all have better immune systems because every, we've just been exposed to everybody's horrible, horrible germs. That, that's the funny part about standing in place and like the, uh, the social distancing and everything that I'm, I'm looking at is like, I was like, wear a mask. You have to wear a mask and uh, clean your hands all the time. And I'm just like, bro, I used to teach sex ed in college. And like the number <laughs> of people who like, if we were doing a demonstration class, didn't know how to put a condom on correctly. Didn't know, they don't know shit. Like nobody does anything right so when they tell everybody wash your hands and stay sanitary i'm like this is harm reduction that's what we used to call it in like the the public health stuff it was harm reduction you can't get someone to stop shooting up heroin so maybe you can get them to use a clean needle and like that's how it is with uh with the washing their hands like nobody is cleaning their hands well enough so at best even if everyone tried to be perfect we're we're still gonna screw this up to a large degree did did you guys have any kind of uh, national celebration or something to honor the, I don't know, the medical staff or whatever? Because over here, um, what they did was they rang, came out, rang their pots and pans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that. that's interesting. Um, <laughs> we, we didn't do a... Said Mike trying to keep a straight face. There were, there, were some, there were some things that people tried to do. Like there was a movement going on where like at 7 p.m. everyone would go outside their house and clap for the medical yeah. people. You know what's really screwed up about it now though is that the amount of disinformation that's going on. And like I don't know if you, if you saw this because I don't know how much you guys pay attention to the American politics and stuff. But like there wasn't a big movement against the shelter in place orders. 
until these first protests, at least from what I saw in Michigan. And the people who showed up at that thing looked like actors. Like they looked <laughs> like people who were paid to play morons. That is not to say that people who believe in that we should end the shelter in place thing are wrong in any way. I don't, I don't have an opinion on it one way or the other at this point. It's hard for me to discern stuff. I, I play the fence a lot with this kind of stuff, but like that, that movement started, it looked like people were just paid by probably Republican governors and, and probably Trump himself who just kind of like said, you know what, we need to get the economy back going. If we'll get some people, people it's like the boy band effect they talked about on South Park. If you get like five girls to scream for, for your boy band, then 10 girls will. And if 10 girls will, a hundred girls will. It's like, if you get 200 people Fine. who are out of their mind <laughs> to go and <laughs> the stuff they were saying, it's like there are legitimate reasons to say end shelter in place. Like, dude, people's businesses are failing. It's causing mental health yeah. problems. It's causing yeah. people to go bankrupt. There's a lot of messed up stuff that's happening because of it. But you can literally see 10 minute highlights of just everyone's I should be able to get my hair done. Look, I haven't had my hair done in a week. I need to do that. And it's like, dude, this is communism. And you're like, okay. But that seems to be like how the political movement started. So like when I, when I look at now we were doing this first responders are amazing. These are the people who are putting themselves on the line, these essential workers. And now it's almost like, people are going the other way with it. Like they're part of some uh, global conspiracy. They're all liars. They're all doing TikTok dances and they're yeah. evil and they work for Gavin Newsom and the new world order. And it's just like, it's very disrespectful because these are literally people who are seeing patients yeah, and yeah. saving lives and getting sick and dying. And now we're saying yeah. that because other people are having negative externalities from the shelter in place, those people are like government shills and it, Americans are a special group of people. So uh, there's what, like over a million cases now in the U.S.? Uh, I, yeah, so, so the numbers are allegedly way higher than were predicted based off of testing numbers. I think there's been like 50,000 deaths associated with it, more than 50,000 deaths associated with it. But people are saying that those numbers are conflated with other stuff. But it's like sure. nobody actually knows. Nobody seems to actually know the numbers. So what they're saying is, well, the numbers are only so high because you're saying that anybody who died in a car crash, if they tested positive for COVID-19, then they're including that in the number, right? However, yep. no one is talking about what percentage of the actual deaths are those conflated numbers versus the real numbers. So yeah. they all just go, hey, I know that at least one situation was bullshit, so they're all bullshit. So it's a lot of logical errors going on in our in our culture right um, now. How is your academy? How is the academy coping with this time of uh with this time of actually um are you guys set for reopening if you um what's your rent scene like how's it going there uh well i was gonna pay my rent through the whole thing and just try to try i have some savings that i that was supposed to go to paying taxes and i was like all right i'll just not pay taxes and file for an extension and keep the gym running um but i've been lucky man i i 130 students or something when this uh when this hit and uh, i think i got about in 80 or 90 now so i i thought that more people were going to cancel so we we've been lucky enough to be able to stay afloat pretty pretty easily on that um but i'm i'm set up i've been i've been trying to budget and everything and uh, so that we could be open even if we had to reopen next year we'd be we'd be able to do it um damn dude as far as my rent, I'm lucky that I have a uh, very low rent. I have a, I have a friend who just signed like a five-year lease on a place for like $8,000 a month because his business was doing really well. And then right when he signed it, the shelter in place hits and you're just going. So my, my experience is not like everyone else's necessarily. Um, it's not easy, but relatively easy compared to. Compared worse, to right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm lucky that, that my students have been so supportive, but also, um, I don't know, as far as they're concerned, I don't have too many students who seem to be having a, a horrible run of it. Um, but like I said, not easy. We've had a few people who had family members die already and um, who've lost their jobs and things like that. So the good thing about it is we are, we are a community of people. So, you know, I was, if somebody did have something would go really wrong. We'd, we'd all chip in to try to help the other person out. So. 
Yeah. How's Papa Frank doing? Papa Frank is out of his goddamn mind. He is, right? <laughs> I mean, the second he is, Papa- something's wrong. Man, he went in for knee surgery the week after Shelter in Place went in. So what so, is Shelter in Place? You keep referring to this. What is it? We don't wear Indians, bro. Quarantine. Shelter in Place. That's, it's a oh, euphemistic God. quarantine. It's so white. Quarantine, quarantine is technically if you're sick, you stay away from people. Oh, Shelter in Place is stay the fuck home so that you don't get sick. Right? Trust, trust you to come up with something, something else. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. The world calls it social distancing. We identify. We don't identify <laughs> as sheltered in place. So you were saying he went in for knee surgery the week before. How's he doing now? Uh, he's doing good, man. He's doing he's doing his uh, circuit training at the house and stuff. Um, he still he works for the department, the water department. So he's he's, he's still working. working. He never stopped working. Um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, like, like I said, my, my students have been supportive enough that I've been able to pay him even though he's not working. So okay. I, I pay him the same amount whether he, whether he teaches or not. Because um, I, I think that's just like a, a necessity in our, in, our, in our organization. It's like, even though he's not doing anything to produce money for me right now, there's no way that I'd have the same number of students if I didn't have that guy around. He's such mm-hmm. an amazing guy. So um, I, I agree. Part of, what, part of what's mine is his for sure. So I'm um, really looking forward to it. He's probably losing his mind because he, his, you know, Papa Frank, he's just, ah, super, <laughs> super excited. He hasn't run a class in two months. Like he hasn't <laughs> made everybody run and yelled, woo. Like he hasn't, he hasn't been able to be himself a hundred percent. So All right. uh, hopefully we can get some stuff started soon. We'll, we'll see what happens. All right, cool. Um, that's it for me. Moit, you got any questions lined up? Um, not, not so much. Um, I think we've been on for, uh, maybe two hours now. Yeah, just over two uh, hours. Yeah. Not bad. Pretty good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Considering this is our third ever attempt at a podcast. Uh, yeah. so, just so of, uh, funnily uh, enough, let, the first let, one we did was 30 minutes. The second one we did has been an hour and a half. And this one tops out at two hours something. So yeah, if we can just edit out your Jimmy the Greek moment about the black, <laughs> guy, about the black guy cutting your hair. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll see. This is not uh, like it's not <laughs> that big a deal over here. Um, so it's fine. When, when your friends see it or somebody sees it around your place, if they do. Yeah, just uh, wait until you come to California. You're going to be on the terrorist watch list for, for emotional terrorism. <laughs> Ashwin was saying the other day, he's like, if we went to the U.S. like this, the way we are uh, bearded and uh, bald right now, everyone would be like, oh, you guys are brothers. He's yeah, like, they wouldn't be able to tell who's who. Dude, I oh, was dude, driving was... into Laburnum once to pick up Mike from Zora's house. Mike looked me dead in the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and looked away. <laughs> and <looked like> <laughs> I was like... Uh. I was like, Mike, what the fuck was that about, bro? Like, you let him know, man, you guys are all brown. <laughs> That's not what I said. I'm okay, not gonna so, be- everyone, so on this podcast, everyone's done or said something racist. Perfect. <laughs> That's what Ashwin said. That's not what I said. But he's quoting what you said. So I had you something did. in my eye. I had something in my eye. Ashwin is, Ashwin is the racist. <laughs> He looked me dead in the eye and then he looked away and kept walking. And I, I don't even know where he was going, bro. Like, he was just walking. It's the rude thing to do post climax, Mike. I saw a cow. I was going to check out the cow. <laughs> Look <laughs> delicious, huh? <laughs> I would never. Do, do you, whenever you see cows, do you always like, mmm, burgers? <laughs> no, dude. Mike just, Mike, Mike. Mike actually did pretty well for for an American in India, dude. He got used to it pretty quickly. I, I didn't mean, get Delhi Belly once. Which is yeah. impressive because me and Mohit, we have incredibly weak stomachs. Hey, we get that shit way more than you do. Shut up, Mohit. You're the worst in mine, I think. Yeah, I got so it in the Philippines. I didn't get it in India, so I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, on, that, on that note. 
Uh, <laughs> have a good day ahead. Stay safe. And uh, we hope to do this not very soon, but maybe soon enough. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. My yeah, assistant, okay. uh, Ashwin, will be in touch. Thanks for having me. You guys can follow Mohit at the Angry Unicorn on, uh, on Instagram. And no, it's actually, I changed it. It's the bald and beautiful. Um, oh, yeah. You need to actually change it to that. That's actually, that's actually pretty good. Classy guy. I was also, Jangi recommended uh, Mo Chogan. So we might go with that as well. Mo Chogan um, is not bad. Let's, let's stick with that. And um, let's get that sign behind you on the podcast page, please. I will take a photo of this and send it to you Simon tomorrow. Mohit, it's legendary. No, you have to be sitting so, in front of that. Budget. Looks budget. like which machine doesn't it? No, Mohit, it doesn't. You guys. It says thus with that. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs>